1: hello and welcome to a special edition of the rhs gardening podcast as christmas fast approaches it's time for our annual discussion of garden related books ancient and modern books to treasure books to give us gifts and books to refer to time and time again I'm Guy Barter, Chief Horticulturist of the RHS. Today I'm joined by three book and plant loving colleagues in our publishing headquarters in
2: Peterborough. I'm James Armitage and I edit The Plantsman and various other RHS specialist publications.
3: I'm Fiona Davison and I'm the Head of Libraries and Exhibitions at the RHS.
4: And I'm Chris Young, the Editor of The Garden Magazine and I oversee all the editorial we make across the society.
1: So, to get things started, let's talk about 2018, a year in books. What garden-related tomes have caught your imagination this year? What have you read? What do you think? Fiona, you're head of RHS Libraries, let's start with you.
3: Every year we buy literally hundreds of books for RHS members, so it's really hard to pick out. I mean, personally, I've been mostly reading about Victorian gardeners, out of that, I think I'd pick out a book that's only just come out called The Galanthophiles by Jane Kilpatrick and Jennifer Harmer because it's a beautifully illustrated book. I really like books that are beautiful things that aren't just the content, that they're really nice things to own and I think The Galanthophiles really hits that on the head. It's beautifully illustrated, lots of illustrations from our collections, which is very nice, but it's also really nice because it gets into the personalities behind the plants and the people who've developed and become slightly it has to be said obsessed with snowdrops which is a seems to be a plant group which attracts obsessives and eccentrics so it's a really interesting read as well as being a lovely physical nice book
4: and chris what's tickled your fancy this year as part of my job as editor of the garden I get to see a huge number of books so I'm really fortunate actually I don't get to read that many but I get to see them and they come through on the book reviews and we have plenty of reviewers who uh, give us their expert opinion about how good these books are but there's a couple that I just wanted to pick out the first is really just sort of an incidental it's a book that I've never read before and my esteemed colleagues around these table have actually read it before but it's a magus by John Fowles and it's um, a classic a 1966 book but Really what strikes me, is nothing to do with horticulture or gardening, but it's the way that plants are a subtext to the story. I'm only halfway through, so I don't quite know how it's all going to finish, but I do know that there's plenty of references to this Greek island where this teacher is working. And it's just this incidental mention of plants for me that helps set the scene, it helps give it context. And I think if you know your plants and if you're relatively interested in them, it gives them a sort of a depth and a richness to the book that I think if you didn't know them, you might miss out. But something more garden-related and more people-related is really um, somebody who I knew pretty well, who is a garden designer called John Brooks. And John died in March 2018, and he really was the father of garden design. I met him many times over the years. He really, like so many people, was the inspiration that I started, the work that I do. And just as he died, um, his book came out. And it's a really important book because it's in his first person, it's in his voice, and it talks about his influences, which was modern landscape, design, architecture, and really about the stories and the designs that he's created over his lifetime. He was an amazing guy. He always had an opinion. He would always criticise people. He had a a cheeky little giggle that um, you knew if he did that, you're probably in trouble. But he knew his world, and really so many people have been influenced by him. Many of us will miss him who know him, but this book keeps his legacy alive and keeps his teaching alive, which is probably the most important thing that he's done. Thank you, Chris. I know at least one relative who'll be glad
1: to receive that as a Christmas present. James, what have you been reading recently?
2: One book I've enjoyed very much is just a little volume called London Street Trees, A Field Guide to the Urban Forest by Paul Wood. The reason I like this is because increasingly I've become really quite obsessed with urban plants. I've always viewed plants, since I became interested in them, as a way of sort of interacting with the world. I think it's the same with any hobby or interest. It's actually just a means by which we take an interest in the world. So it could be stained glass windows, it could be sites of special literary interest in the capital city, but for me it's trees, and I love that this man, Paul Wood, has just gone around spotting the rare and unusual and spectacular sights in our capital city, and writing about them. And he writes very succinctly, and he just gives a little brief history, tells you where you might see fantastic specimens of these things. And it really just makes you want to get out there and just experience London through its vegetation. I just find the whole thing captures your imagination and just makes you think of the landscape around you in urban places, certainly, as a garden, as something that we can plant up and we can experience. Really, you can make the world a much better place through plants. And I think that's the message of his little book. It looks to me, James, as though that's quite a small book for a lot of information. Is it big enough to read, do you think? It's sort of hand-sized and it's got a fantastic hand feel. I do think for sort of reference books like this it's important to have a nice hand feel and as you flick through it you kind of you feel the enthusiasm build i think it's something you don't get off the internet and phones and stuff like that so Mm -hmm. it just doesn't work with an app but if you got this out of your satchel and you you feel like somebody on an adventure and that's what i really love about it it's this sort of little square book and it feels really really nice to hold Don't you find that actually people don't notice many street
4: trees? Because, I mean, I'm always banging on to my kids about looking up. When they're walking on the street, look up at the trees, look at the buildings, because buildings are often so much architecturally more interesting on the first and above floors. But do you think people are noticing the street trees we've
2: got? I think people make a big deal about, trees in in urban places but they don't seem to mind particularly what they are and for me that's the really big interest is the diversity that's out there you know perhaps it's a bit of a stamp collector's mentality or any surely not for uh, botanists. Uh, oh you but um <laughs> but, but everybody actually whatever their cup of tea whether it's fashion or train spotting whatever people love diversity they love the intricacies of differentness and that's what i really excites me about urban botany is that just all the different things and seeing the different variations of the different things it really is a an incredible sight that we should value a bit more than we do I think particularly relevant to some of the work we're doing in brixton
1: with community groups i'm trying to get them to plant pomegranates and loquats which i do very well in that area yeah did you have another book
2: there's another book which actually well this one is quite word heavy and quite information packed the other book i've chosen is um marianne north the q collection which has really no words at all it's just a collection Of pictures.
1: Perhaps you could say who Marianne North is, because many people won't know.
2: I will tell you. Marianne North was a remarkable Victorian woman. Um, She was born in 1830, came from an aristocratic family, and her father was a member of parliament. And he sort of dragged her off around the world. And she started off as a sort of vocalist, but anyway, as her voice failed or found not to be good enough, she took to plants and drawing plants. And in all the places she visited with her father around the world, she would draw plants. And her mother died when she, I think she was fairly young, she was about 25. And then she and her father just upped the ante and went even more after it. So she travelled all over the place. She travelled to Sicily and Canada and Jamaica and Brazil and the Far East and Borneo and Ceylon and California. And latterly in her life to Australia and South Africa And wherever she went, she would draw and she drew these exquisite, colourful, remarkable paintings of plants. And in 1880, she returned briefly to the UK and offered Q all her body of work and some money to build a gallery to put them in. And Q said, yes, we'd love that. And so it was completed in 1882 and subsequently extended. And you can still go there now and just see this incredible collection of paintings. And in this volume... They're all in one place and as you flick through you just see the colour, the excitement of plants and just the incredible romance of plants and travelling the world to view them. You know, a remarkable woman.
3: They're really unusual paintings because we, if you're used to looking at botanical illustration, tend to be very... Sometimes a little cold, you know, they're about recording the plant. What she does, she records the plant in situ, and they're just such exuberant paintings. You know, they're just, you can see the excitement of being somewhere where it's incredibly lush, incredibly verdant, and just get the sense of growth. You and and yeah. the way they hang at Kew, yeah. it's floor to ceiling. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like almost too to take in its it, you say, is. isn't it? It is. And then actually you can see them better in the book in a way. But yeah. thats I would urge anyone who's at Kew to head to the Marianne North Gallery because it's like entering a jungle. It's just mm-hmm. everywhere.
1: I found a book called Irrigated Crops and Their Management. This is a treasured possession. <laughs> it dates from 1990 and we've had a really hot, dry summer. I've often been asked and had to tell people about how to water their plants and how much water to give and when to give it, and this pulled together by uh, Dr Roger Bailey, who I've had the pleasure of meeting in the past, I think he's retired, I'm sure he's retired now, it goes into it in a really good, simple way, it was designed to be read by farmers, not by um, other irrigation professionals. The only thing I would say is that he kind of makes a few assumptions, and I think, nowadays we make it a little bit more approachable about how to actually do it on the ground in your hands but it's uh, a treasured possession that whose information is as true now as when the experiments were done in the 1960s and 70s and through the 80s irrigated crops and their management roger bailey long out of print from the farming press but as ever nowadays you can buy books secondhand very easily with the world wide web thingy You can find details of all the books discussed in today's podcast and links to order them online at rhs.org.uk forward slash books podcast. Unbelievably, this is the third of our annual book podcasts. You can find links to the previous ones on our website as well. Next year also promises to be a rich year for book-loving gardeners, with a huge range of widely anticipated titles hitting shop shelves. New publications for 2019 include Kate Bradbury's inspiring practical guide to wildlife gardening.
5: Wildlife Gardening for Everyone is a practical, hands-on guide to gardening for wildlife. It's got loads of information for... People who have large gardens, right down to people who have small gardens and balconies. Even a front doorstep, there's tips in there for you if you want to create a wildlife-friendly doorstep. It's very much written for everyone and the idea is as well that it can bring in all wildlife. So it's very much wildlife gardening for everyone and everything. By all kinds of wildlife, I mean not just birds tiny insects so the things that we often sort of take for granted and don't see so anything from woodlice to centipedes tiny beetles and these are the things that you might not specifically want in your garden but these are all the things that are at the bottom of the food chain so the more insects and small invertebrates and little grubs and spiders you can bring into the bottom of the food chain i.e., your garden then the more species you get further up the food chain so the more birds amphibians hedgehogs and bats and things that you get in that come and eat those species. So very much the book concentrates on food chains and how we bring the wildlife in by creating habitats for those really small species. What's really good about this book is there's a really big exclusive bee section. Bees are obviously very popular. They've been in the news a lot. Most people want to help bees. They're declining and you know lots of really terrible things are happening to them. But of course, as wildlife gardeners, we can all make a difference to bee populations. So in the book, there's a very detailed information on specifically bee hotels and solitary bees. And very new, which is exclusive content. It's never been published before. There's a step-by-step guide on how to manage your bee hotel. Because scientists have learned over the years since putting bee hotels up and creating these habitats for solitary bees like leafcutter bees and red mason bees, what they've found is that by putting the bee hotel up and then simply leaving it there, potentially you're doing more harm than good because these bee hotels can attract parasites and predators and so what happens if you put the bee hotel up and leave it there, potentially you're actually increasing populations of the predators and and the parasites rather than the bees themselves So in my book, there's a step-by-step guide on how to harvest the cocoons safely, how to store them and how to clean the bee hotel. It's not harder than cleaning a bird box and it's a really wonderful way to preserve your bees and to actually increase the bee population, which is pretty much why we all put the bee hotels up in the first place. Wildlife Gardening for Everyone comes out in May 2019 and is published by Bloomsbury in conjunction with the Wildlife Trusts and the RHS.
1: Author Kate Bradbury... We're now joined round the table by Ray Spencer Jones. Ray leads the Royal Horticultural Society's book publishing team. Ray, tell us about some of the titles the RHS has commissioned that are coming out in 2019.
6: Okay, well, I've got four lovely books um, that are coming out in spring 2019. The first one that I'd like to talk about is 50 Plants You Can't Kill. This is written by the youngest RHS ambassador, Jamie Butterworth. So this book has a lovely clear layout to the pages. It's got easily accessible information and it is really written for people who are phobic about growing plants think that they might not be a green-fingered person it's laid out in five sections of ten plants covering all the different plant groups people don't have to work hard to find out why they should grow these particular plants where they should be put and how to look after them and there's a really handy sort of little box section at the bottom of each page that gives you do's and don'ts the plant groups covered are ones that you might expect such as perennials, shrubs, annuals and bulbs, fruit and veg, house plants and climbers. They are all plants that are easily purchased and they also give us 3 varieties to try it's a great starter book hopefully it would give people some confidence to grow these plants and become a little bit more adventurous as time goes on
1: well, that's all very well Ray but what are the pictures like
6: so the pictures as you can see guy are lovely and clear hopefully very inspirational for gardeners and then on the pages where we've got the three to try just very simple pages where we've got three images and then we've got the names of the plants so people don't have to work hard at all to find out what they are.
1: What's your next book? I see great armfuls of notes and proofs lying there
6: Yes, so my next book which is actually going to be my favourite one for 2019 is The Magic and Mystery of Trees which I believe you're familiar with so this book is a wonderful book for children sort of aged seven to 11. It was inspired by the Judy Dench programme in, in which she documented about her sort of passion for trees. And it takes us through the sort of nuts and bolts of trees, but also how they interact with each other in their woodland environments. It's beautifully illustrated. And not only should it be read by children, but actually I think adults would get a lot from reading it.
1: I certainly enjoyed reading it and I thought the illustrations had something of the look of the old old ladybird books that um, we all remember so fondly.
4: It can be quite a tricky age to publish for, that 7 to 11, because you don't want to be too low and patronising, and you don't want to be too adult and lose them. But that book certainly seems to balance it really well,
6: doesn't it? Yeah, I think it's a really great balance. It gives you that sort of basic information of trees and how they function in their environment. But then it comes out with the fantastic little nuggets of information on how trees support each other, how they look after each other, that there are mother trees that pass food to their children and older trees in the family. The fact that trees have senses, their trunks vibrate when they're thirsty and that kind of thing. So it is a very inspiring book and I think one that would bring to life something that people take for granted every day.
1: What's the next book on your so, a pile of manuscripts. Yes. There.
6: So, my next book is a book by RHS ambassador and BBC Gardeners World presenter Adam Frost called How to Create Your Garden. This is very much a book that we hope reflects Adam's voice and his style. It is meant to be a book that holds the hand of the novice gardener, somebody who might be wanting to be a little bit more adventurous and wanting to design and build their own garden. He has a very strong philosophy that this is not about chasing perfection in the garden, but it's very much a journey through the book. And this idea that, you know, we're all very good at turning our houses into homes, but gardens can present a different challenge and they can be really overwhelming. So the book is broken down into sections and it is very much a journey through the book on how to create it, how to learn to love plants and choose your plants. There are step-by-step that will show you how to build various aspects of your garden and then at the end which I think is probably the most important part of the book is how to enjoy it but there are also seasonal elements to it as well so what you've got to do each month.
1: Well as someone who suffers from gardening I'm going to pay particular Mm -hmm. attention to the chapter on how to enjoy your garden And do you have another book, I believe?
6: I do. My final one is the RHS book, which is a book about the nuts and bolts of the RHS from history through to its future. It's written by Matthew Biggs, presenter on Gardener's Question Time. He has spent months going backwards and forwards around the country to all the gardens and to every department of the RHS to have very in-depth conversations and interviews with members of RHS staff. I don't think that a book like this has ever been published about the RHS. We've certainly had a history that was written by Brent Elliott several years ago, but this book really does take it from beginning to the future. So it's really beautifully illustrated with photography by Jason Ingram, some stunning images of the gardens. So I think it will be very inspirational.
1: So Ray, are these books you've introduced this wealth of- books, are they available to pre-order yet?
6: Yes, they will certainly be available um, through the RHS shop.
1: Thank you, Ray. Details of these books and more are on the podcast page of the RHS website. As we approach the season of Feast, it seems an appropriate time to talk about food. It seems you can barely open your eyes without being bombarded with images of quality street, dancing Brussels sprouts and turkey dinners. Vegan options are available. In recent years, many authors have turned their attention to the relationship between plot and plate. Which authors are your go-to guides to food and gardening? This is a subject close to my heart. As a very keen fruit and vegetable grower, all the recipes I see in magazines and newspapers, they sort of assume that you go to the supermarket and buy anything at any time of year that's not the case at all with me as a fruit and vegetable grower of extreme keenness i want recipes that i can use the stuff that's in the garden at the moment and for me dr sarah raven's cookbook is a jolly good one this year i had a vast glut of tomatoes and her tomato soup recipes came to my rescue so i didn't have to
4: discard this uh, vast abundance of red fruits i'm not clearly as talented or as able as Guy in his fruit and vegetable growing but there is one book that I had a few years ago uh, which really did link plot to plate and that was a combination of Gay Search and Delia Smith and it was around in about 2004 and it was a beginner's guide to growing and cooking fruit and veg it was a beautifully laid out book really easy to understand and actually was really overt in bringing fruit and veg uh, into cookery it was really useful and very attractive to look at I would agree with that I've still got my copy
3: I'm not a very accomplished cook. I'm not a very accomplished veg grower either. But there's just loads of inspiration on the shelves at the, particularly the Lindley Library, because for decades the RHS has been aware that gardeners want to cook the food that they're busy growing. Some of these books that we've got are straightforward cookery books. We went through a phase in the 1880s, 1890s of wanting to champion vegetarianism when it was quite a wacky... Thing to do. We got gripped by um, somebody called Lady Paget, who was an early vegetarian campaigner. Who writes about? I've got this book here, which is called "Nice Dishes for the Vegetarian Household" from 1898. Which is they're Certainly. not nice; they sound horrible. But the introduction's fascinating because she talks about. How you've got to get over your craving for the morbid excitement of a meat diet.
4: Just get over it.
3: <laughs> I just love the idea of morbid okay, excitement. Morbid excitement. <laughs> um, and some of the um, recipes sound truly frightening. They just involve boiling things for hours. <laughs> Potato bullets does not sound appealing. And also they've what's really nice generally about... A lot of old books are the adverts. You go straight to the back for the adverts. Get a box of fruit, cereals and pulses, which they promise is better than a turkey. And then we've got potato cookery. 300, count them, 300 potato recipes by about recipe 75 they're getting a bit desperate (laughs) (laughs)
4: there's a common theme there's a
3: common theme boiled potatoes and then boiled potatoes brackets another way but they're just on and on and on and then by the end they're getting desperate and they're going into desserts and there's potato meringue potato biscuits Lots and lots and lots of potato soup. There are about 20 recipes which are potato soups and each one's got a different vegetable added. Potato soup with beetroot, potato (laughs) soup with leek, on and on and on. But it gets you to
4: your 300, doesn't
1: it? It
3: does get you. You sense there was some kind of publishing pressure there. They could have got to
1: 500 if they had microwaves, couldn't they?
3: (laughs) (laughs) They do just believe in boiling for a long time. They're really good fun, but they do speak of a time when you would get, One food crop in large quantities, and it wouldn't be this year round. Oh, I feel like a kiwi. You've got potatoes and lots of them, so you've got to go with it. A lot of our more interesting cookbooks, as well, around vegetables are obviously wartime, because that's when there was a real focus on the housewife in particular to be imaginative and to cook with vegetables and fruit in a way that possibly they hadn't had to before. One of my favourites is this is immediately post-war so this is when people are really excited because things are starting to come back to market. And we've got 282 ways of making a salad.
1: They probably contracted to do 300, but they gave up and <laughs> forfeited out. part of their fee. <laughs> <laughs>
3: what, what it is, is it's also really interesting from a historian's point of view. This is a, we think of celebrity cookbooks and celebrity endorsements mm. of things as being a, a modern thing. This is 1949 and this was written by B.B. Daniels, who was a kind of musical Hollywood star. She was in 42nd Street. And she's obviously rounded up a number of her celebrity friends and said, give me a salad recipe. And so we've got Vivian Lee and Laurence Olivier's uh, green salad. Hollywood star I wouldn't go round for dinner to is Humphrey Bogart. Humphrey Bogart gives us his asparagus with tongue and cheese salad. Oh, It just sounds revolting. You boil the asparagus for two hours.
4: <laughs> What's remaining? <I> don't
3: know. <laughs> and then it assumes that they'll be in one piece, and I can't see how. <laughs> um, coat re- the tips with salad cream and then mince tongue and marinate it in a tablespoon of salad dressing. Mix with egg yolks and minced onion. Stuff the eggs with this mixture. Tear lettuce leaves. Put in a bowl with vinaigrette dressing. It just sounds. I think it's,
1: I think it's Mr. Bogart's sense of humour
4: coming into play
3: here. Possibly, possibly. Were these
4: recipe books, as per we know them now, in terms of the kitchen section of a bookshop? In those days, did they have a gardening section? And were these actual recipe books, or were these a hybrid?
3: I think that the 282 ways of making salads possibly a hybrid. It's as much about the celebrities as it is about the recipes, although they start with the forward saying, you know, this is in celebration for the housewife who's had to make do without, and now you can fill your boots and make tongue salad. But there were serious recipe books. There was a market for recipe books. And we've got a lot, probably from about the 1880s, we've got some very, very old ones when households had limited number of books. And then the recipes tend to be in with a general book of household management. So it's not just about cooking, it's about making your own medicines, it's about the household, the garden and the estate. But from the 19th century, 20th century on, yeah, you would have a recipe book section in your bookshop.
1: And finally, gifts. If you didn't do all your Christmas shopping back in the January sales, don't despair. There's still plenty of time to buy and wrap some wonderful books for friends and family. To make this easier, we've all selected a couple of titles that we think will satisfy
2: both practical and pleasure-seeking gardeners. James, what have you come up with? The first of these is one which you probably haven't heard of, but is a reference book that I've come really to value. And it's called The New Sunset Western Garden Book. I came across this actually when I was in New Zealand. It was in 2014. And I met there a woman from San Diego who had the fantastical name of Loretta Berlin. If ever I write a book which (laughs) requires a smoky nightclub singer, she will certainly be called (laughs) Loretta Berlin. But she introduced me to this book, the new Sunset Western Garden book. And she couldn't believe I hadn't heard of it because it's in Californian. It is the gardening reference book that they all use. And what I really enjoy about just being around it is the absurdly bold colours and just the American feel of it. It's like a sort of American peanut butter packaging sort of look. And it's got this really hard wearing thick cover. But inside is just full of sort of effortless detail about just the garden plants they grow out there. And it's a bit like our sort of A to Z. But for American gardens, it's got all sorts of species that you wouldn't come across here and cultivars that you might never heard of. Practical stuff at the front. It's like watching somebody doing bricklaying or something. You know, if you're an expert bricklayer, you can just seem to dump some cement on and then put some bricks up and there's a wall. And it's just that kind of publishing. It just seems to come together very naturally and be this incredibly practical, useful thing I really think if you're quite a keen bean gardener, it's definitely one to get hold of. The other book I I have selected is Island Gardens, Havens of Beauty Around the British Isles by Jackie Bennett. And I just think gardens are very romantic places, coastal places are very romantic places. Put the two together and you've just got a really amazing book. And the UK, having so much coastline, has some of the most amazing coastal gardens in the whole world. As you flick through the book, it evokes the salty air and the seagulls wheeling and the blue skies and... The clack of palm fronds and all the rest of it. And it's just, it's a wonderful way to escape a doldrum sort of day.
1: Sounds dreamy. Fiona, what have you come up with to benefit the lucky people in, in your family and acquaintances?
3: You know, you always buy presents that you really want. I really have got some roses which have gone beyond, and I need to just get the courage in my hands and start some pruning. So the RHS book of pruning and training, go back to the good one, the Bible, edited by Chris Brackell, to give me confidence. Last time I tried to prune them, it was dead still, and then the wind whipped up, and I got completely lacerated, retreated, so I Mm. need to get in again.
1: Sounds like you need some good gardening advice. See me afterwards. (laughs) Now, Chris, (laughs) (laughs) you're wriggling and jiggling on your seat.
4: What what books have you brought along? (laughs) Um, This book is called War Gardens, and it's by a photojournalist called Lalage Snow. And we had the fortune of meeting Lalage many years ago on the Garden Magazine because we published her article and these photographs in December 2013. And they're basically people of pictures in war-torn areas around the world who are making the most of their horrendous situation by growing plants or protecting plants or growing food. And so she has written this book, which is a pretty gritty book, to be honest with you, because it's about people in really difficult situations but it really just reminds you of the importance of growing things the devastation that war can bring but also these tiny little glimpses of pleasure and joy people can get from planting old tupperwares or shells or even old bits of rocket have been planted up with different cacti in them just to beautify and give some inspiration to an area so it's a real makes you count your blessings but also it's an amazing story about her work and the places she's been and what she's seen
1: and I've found a real gem looking through the London Lindley Library. It's a series of books, and they're called Science is Beautiful. And this one is Science is Beautiful, Botanical Life Under the Microscope by a Colin Salter. And what it is, is a coffee table sort of book, and it's full of pictures of photographs taken down the microscope scanning electron microscopes and various other kind of microscopes which they don't actually detail unfortunately to nerdy people who love microscopes like me there's pictures of pollen there's pictures of bees legs there's pictures of plant leaf surfaces they've added artificial color no doubt for the um, which again I would have liked a bit more detail on it gives a real idea of how the microscopic three-dimensional structure of plants is laid out like a pelargonium leaf with a scent gland that uh, sticks up out of the uh, cells. And you can see the stomata, the breathing pores of plant leaves, um, all in beautiful detail. That's a really lovely book. And it's not very expensive. It's about £17. I'd love to give everybody my own book, but you know, it's been so popular. It's virtually <laughs> sold out. I understand difficulty was found trying to find a copy to review. Lovely. Oh, Fiona, you appear to have one. I
3: have from the shelves of the Lindy Library. Because if you can't buy one, remember, go to the library. And it asks the pressing question of our day, can anything <laughs> stop slugs? Actually, I did enjoy it on the train journey, and I'm a bit obsessed with slugs and snails at the minute, because I'm researching an exhibition all about them, so it's very good.
4: What's the answer, Guy? <laughs> I think that
1: one can never stop any horticultural problem, one can only manage it, so that you can still grow good crops without actually smothering the uh, countryside or the garden with slug pellets or bankrupting yourself buying nematodes that is what the book's about and a whole range of problems all very good ones if i may say so thank you all fiona davison chris young and james armitage and our studio guests ray spencer jones and kate bradbury that's all we have time for today I'm Guy Barter, and you've been listening to the 2018 RHS Gardening Books Podcast. As I mentioned earlier, you can find details of all the books discussed at rhs.org.uk forward slash books podcast, and you can buy many of them through the RHS's online shop. If you haven't already, why not sign up for our free fortnightly gardening podcasts? Each edition contains a mixture of features and discussions exploring every aspect of gardening. Download them from our website or subscribe via iTunes. Until the next time, from me, Guy Barter and all the podcast team, goodbye and happy reading.